Hello, and welcome to Extra Grim, the show within a show where we delve a little deeper into the world of the Brothers Grimm. In this episode, we interview the travel writer Nicholas Jubber about his book, The Fairy Teller. So, pop another log on the fire, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome to Extra Grim. Hello. This time, it's uh, another interview. This is exciting. Who are we interviewing now? Well, in this episode, we will be interviewing Nicholas Jubber. Uh, Nicholas is an award-winning travel writer with an interest in storytelling and history. He's written five books so far, including Epic Continent, Adventures in the Great Stories of Europe, and The Timbuktu School for Nomads, Lessons from the People of the Desert. His latest book, published early in 2022, is called The Fairy Tellers. In it, Nick tells the story of the people who are behind famous fairy tales, the fairy tellers. So the book is divided into seven parts, and each one looks at a different fairy teller. Uh, And these are included Basile, Hans Christian Andersen, uh, Madame de Villeneuve, who wrote Beauty and the Beast, and Dorchen Wilde, who was the source of many Brothers Grimm's stories. So that's a few names there that would be very familiar to listeners of the podcast. Massive names there. Mm. Uh, now, I, So I read The Fairy Tellers at the, the start of this year, uh, and I finally got around to tracking Nick down and uh, securing an interview. Uh, and uh, we've just done the interview. I think it went pretty well. I think so. It's a really enjoyable chat. What, what topics did we cover, Adam? So much. We covered Dorch and Wild. We covered Basile. We covered the process of putting together a sort of partial travel book, partial exploration of fairy tales. We touched on Hans Christian Andersen. We... What else did we talk about? I can't even remember. Loads of stuff. Loads of stuff. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about Dorch and Wild, I think, uh, and her influence on the Brothers Grimm. I mean, I think there was just his book so detailed and rich and, and all these different fairy tellers have such incredible stories that we're kind of flittering around all over the place because I wanted to ask him about the different ones. Yeah. But um, I don't know. A lot was covered, I'd say. So we talked about the fairy tellers and as well the uh, what makes a good fairy tale, I think. Like what's the formula and getting the balance right of certain yeah. elements and it was interesting as you say like we talked about the travel aspect of it so for him to actually be there in these places and and meeting people who are involved with it was quite interesting as well really interesting and if you like the sound of a couple of uh, kind of almost abridged versions of maybe some Brazile stories stay tuned (laughs) for that because that that came up I I think his love of Brazile was my favourite part of this yeah well we we started off though with um you, Adam, asking him about his interest in, in fairy tales and folklore and what brought him to this subject. So, uh, over to Nick, without further ado. Take it away. Um, have you always been interested in fairy tales and folklore and um, what kind of brought you to the subject? Yeah, there's something that's sort of stayed with me. I mean, certainly in childhood, I was really interested in them, but I suppose when whenever there is that 
stage at which you're supposed to sort of leave them behind and move on to more grown up things. I think I, I didn't quite, I kind of stuck with them or, or they stuck with me sort of you know, clinging to my back like some kind of goblin. And uh, as a student, as a uni student, I, I was really, really fascinated by fairy tales to, to, to the extent that people would sort of say to me, do you want to talk about fairy tales? You know, there was a, you know, a pause in the conversation. Um, and I wrote plays with fairy tale characters. And uh, one of, I wrote one about Humpty Dumpty and the sort of the mystery of who pushed him off the wall. And it all ended up being about this battle with a goblin army led by Elvis. Um, so, I mean, I was a student, so, you know, obviously I was smoking something at that point. Um, and then, um, and then they just, yeah, just sort of carried on and and then with my own kids I've been sort of I was delving back into these stories and wondering just finding myself wondering more and more who are the people behind them but really enjoying the the stories themselves and thinking wow these are such rich wonderful tales you know such uh, amazing sort of twists in the plots and and fantastical sort of settings and surprises along the way and um, although they're often very archetypal and you don't always get sort of depth of character in fairy tales and yet there there did seem to be these hidden depths and sort of hidden qualities to them that feel like they're eminently rereadable and this is what brought you to to writing your your book the fairy teller yeah it just felt like a subject that i really wanted to sort of go into and it felt like a subject that i'd always wanted to go into so it wasn't like i made a conscious decision i'm now going to write about fairy tales it was more i thought like okay now now I'm ready. This book that's sort of been bubbling around in my head is sort of ready to go. And and I wanted to travel to places connected with the fairy tales and try and find out, just find out as much as I could. And so I so started sort of imagining journeys. And I think for me, often the idea of a book comes from sort of putting my finger on a map and sort of imagining, OK, I'm going to go here and I'm going to travel along to there and I'm going to wander around in this in this forest and sort of across this river. And and, and then it all starts to sort of become it, it, it's it's sort of imaginable and 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 it becomes an adventure and I guess a story of of itself um, and so then I set off to, uh, to to Germany and to Italy and to to Lapland and 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 Scandinavia and and had had a, a few adventures and and started sort of falling into the the the, the content of the that that would become the book. So yeah, so the book's broken down into seven parts, mm-hmm. with each one focusing on a different fairy teller. So yeah, I was I was going to ask sort of how did you go about compiling the book, but it sounds like so you had the kind of the, the idea for the book already there, and then I, yeah, I wondered you know did you like meticulously plan your trips because you're a travel writer? Uh, at the end of the day, did you plan them and then go, or did you just sort of turn up and and see what happened and follow the the programs? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to be able to say that I just sort of follow this sort of you know the trail wherever it took me, but yeah, they were quite carefully planned mainly because I had. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a young family, I have little kids, and so I can't really go wandering off for long periods of time anymore. Um, so it had to be quite targeted. But also, it, the research and the writing of the book was disrupted by the, you know, like everybody who's you know had a book out this year, I suppose, um, by by COVID. And so a lot of the journeys that I had been planning were no longer possible. So I was lucky enough that I was able to get out to. The sort of the core journeys I think for the book particularly going into the Basilicata which is and, and southern Italy where Gian Battista Basile collected his stories for the the tale of tales which is the first part of the book and to sort of just I guess to just tell listeners sort of a little bit about him he's this amazing Italian fairy teller fairy tale collector who lived in the 17th century and wrote what is considered to be Europe's first integral fairy tale collection so the first collection that's devoted entirely to fairy tales and it includes the earliest full-length European versions of Cinderella and 
um, Rapunzel and one of the earliest versions of Sleeping Beauty and many other amazing stories. And so I traveled around some of the places that, that he came from. He came from Naples and it's a wonderful city to, to delve into if you're interested in that particular time, the 17th century, because the structure of the city is the same because so many of the buildings have, uh, you know, are, are the same, maybe a little bit dilapidated in some cases. And you can really visualize the city when you go into places uh, like there's a chapel where they have um, Caravaggio's Seven Acts of Mercy, which was painted around the same time in, I think, around 1609. So around the time that Basile lived in that city, and it, it's based on drawing on, on Naples from that time. So it's a city that you can really travel into and feel like you're in that particular period of time. And I traveled to various other places in the south of Italy, in Avellino and Basilicata, talked to actors who performed some of Basile's tales and um, a poet in, in the Basilicata who, who lived in a cave in his childhood, um, as many people had in that region. And, and that sort of echoes with the, the ogres and the, the uh, many of the characters in the fairy tales. So it was a, a wonderful experience of feeling like the, the textures of the stories were sort of there around you if you if you were able to just sort of look and see and try and try and locate them and sort of pin them down. And then there were other journeys into Germany and, and into um, Castle and that was wonderful sort of step I mean unfortunately Castle was destroyed really and so much of it was destroyed in World War II so in many ways it wasn't wonderful but what is wonderful is that they have the amazing Grimbelt Museum where you could Definitely the artifacts from the Grimm's time and there's loads of loads of uh, information and some wonderful sort of installations you know you can go into the the into Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother's hut and the grandmother turns into a wolf as you go in there to sort of spook you and then you go into the gingerbread house um, where you can make your own witch and decide sort of whether she's got a pointy hat or an eagle on her head or no an owl on her head or whatever and you know all these different things and there's a wonderful trumpet where you can shout German swear words and they they're echoed back at you because the the Grimm's were in you know, a great dictionary compilers so there's all this stuff about the wonderful words that they collected so that was wonderful and, and going into the Black Forest as well and camping in the Black Forest and then coming out and there was a witch festival going on in the village nearby lots of people dressed up as witches and also as various other fairy tale characters it was amazing just sort of chatting to to people about their favorite stories and you know if you talk to people in in England about their favorite Grimm stories you know you're more, most likely to be to, to talk about some of the, the very well-known ones, but obviously in, in Germany, the, the, I think the, the, the depth of, of knowledge of the collection is so broad. So people would be talking about the devil with the black coat or the um, or hands my hedgehog or, you know, stories that don't necessarily always come up. And, um, and it was, yeah, that was really great. And then I uh, traveled onwards through to Scandinavia and Lapland and met some reindeer herders and, and people who were putting on the Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen as a ballet and, and scholars who'd, who'd researched about Hans Christian Andersen and so on. So I was lucky I was able to, to do all those journeys. And then the, the pandemic turned up and you know everything obviously closed down. And so the rest of the research ended up being more about sort of digging into archives, doing that online mostly and, and sort of re uh, contacting academics and scholars and in many ways it was wonderful actually because it gave me an opportunity to talk to a lot of scholars all around the world in America in India in in France in Germany and many places people who um, because of what was happening they were they were maybe less busy and you know easy, easier to to get hold of than than they might have been uh, but obviously yeah it did um, <laughs> a bit the the journey that I'd been planning yeah that must have been stressful if you've been planning all that meticulously <laughs> you had it all worked yeah. out yeah but then i think i think a book also sort of takes its it goes on its own trajectory and i think i had a, a sort of a vague idea at, at one stage that i was going to do something about the czech fairy tales and that and there's a really interesting sort of um uh, collection of, of czech fairy tales that were collected in the 19th century and that was sort of shelved because i wasn't able to get out there but instead i started 
finding out more and more about the Indian stories. And actually, I think now when I look back at the overall book, I'm quite glad that I did, because I think that gives us out, moving out of Europe more in a sense of a wider international framework to the overall collection. It also goes back further in time, because those stories from the collection, which is called The Ocean of the Streams of Story, which is collected by a, written by a poet called Somadeva in the 11th century. It goes right back, so you know, right back almost a millennium ago. Um, and they're very, very beautiful, magical, very strange, very lavish tales. You know, there's the story of man diving out of a shipwreck and finding himself in an underwater kingdom inhabited entirely by immortals. Or there's the gambler who rides on the back of a talking bird to a city of gold, or a man who creates a, a city of wooden automatons, basically sort of robots around himself in his solitude. So very sort of magical tales. And I probably wouldn't have discovered those if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So you um it's you know, it's a bit like with fairy tales really you know you 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 find yourself up against obstacles and then something surprising happens and then you know you maybe that's the path that you were always supposed to go down anyway <laughs> <laughs> no that's interesting so the book the book obviously covers um seven different fairy tellers so did you narrow it down to those seven was that purely practicalities of where you could travel to or were there ones you're particularly keen on Sort of visiting anyway. it was something that changed a lot during the course of writing it because i kept finding out about different fairy tellers and the more i delved into the subject obviously the more fairy tellers i knew about and there were lots of really brilliant storytellers who i thought i'd love to write about and who i even went into did a lot of research on i mean there's the the baroness dornoy for example in france who who is credited with coining the term conte de vey which is our term fairy tale and wrote some absolutely magical and wonderfully subversive fairy tales in the 1690s in france and she was a huge figure in the history of fairy tales, but I chose not to have a whole section about her because I decided to have a section about the woman who wrote Beauty and the Beast, the Gabriel Susan de Villeneuve, and that was mainly because her story hadn't been told so much. Uh, the Baroness Dornoy story has been told by scholars like Marina Warner quite extensively, whereas Gabriel Susan de Villeneuve has been almost entirely neglected. And um, so I felt like there, there was something, you know, something to contribute to the overall sort of history of the genre. And it was fascinating as well because I, I used your book a bit for our episode on, on Beauty and the Beast or the Summer and Winter Garden as the Brothers Grimm had it. And uh, it was just incredible. Her story, you know, she had like, was it Casanova came around her house? and Yeah, people. Casanova visited everybody. But um, <laughs> he, um, he, he got French lessons from her, from, from her, her, her boss, who was also her partner, I suppose you know, had um, um, uh, Prosper Jolie de Crebillon, this cantankerous playwright. So the story is that she, yeah, she was, a, she was a, a, a bankrupt aristocrat who lost her fortune. And so she went to Paris, got a job as a housekeeper to Monsieur de Crebillon, who was the grumpiest man in Paris. He was a great rival of Voltaire. And at the time, many people thought he was a greater writer than Voltaire, but Voltaire obviously didn't. And um, was, you know, very, very eloquent in, in, in criticizing him and declaring that he was a barbarian and a vandal and, you know, with a sad sort of outlook on the world and um, his plays gradually sort of fell out of favour. Um, they're very morbid, very macabre, very violent plays. Uh, they'd probably be really popular now actually. He'd have like a Netflix um, deal probably but uh, he um, he was in down in the dumps and he lived with lots of cats and dogs and in his house full of full of plants and he smoked incessantly and was considered to be just massively antisocial and um, very very grumpy so Casanova came along and just thought it was really weird that this guy stayed at home all day and never went out to party uh, you know you're living in 18th century Paris what are you doing <laughs> and, um, and Madame de Villeneuve was the housekeeper and people wrote really mean things about her they thought she was a very strange woman and but she she did a lot she did all the housework she helped 
de Crebion with his literary activities and I think she helped him ultimately to get out of the out of his funk and to re start writing again and um, eventually he wrote a new play called Catalina which was put on to great success with Madame de Pompadour and lots of the French court attending the opening night and um, and of course she wrote her fairy tales as well including Beauty and the Beast. Fantastic I mean there's so many amazing stories yeah in your book I kind of didn't really know you know which to ask you about really because they're also <laughs> fascinating but I suppose um the main one we should talk about is uh Dorchen Wild yes field I guess yes um so she was uh one of the sources of the Grimm's fairy tales along with mm -hmm. her sisters and she eventually married Wilhelm Grimm so um yeah. could you tell us about Dorchen who yeah. was she what do we know about her what's her story well she was the daughter of the apothecary who lived across the road from the brothers Grimm so she is the classic sort of girl next door and and they had moved into castle they'd you know fallen into hard times financially and they'd moved into this sort of pokey little apartment um in in, in castle and and she was across the road from them and her her sisters her mother they different members of the family would occasionally pop round to the Grimm's. She became friends with uh, Lottie Grimm, the uh, younger sister. And um, I think that was how she sort of found her way into the Grimm's household. And she would tell them stories, stories which she had heard from her own nurse at, at home, stories which she'd heard from, from people who come to visit the house. And I think living in a, an apothecary's shop meant you had people constantly coming in and out. And these sort of shops, you know, they were, places where people would gather you know you can imagine people coming to say oh I've got a bit of a back pain I'm not quite sure what I need and then you know they start chatting don't they and they start having a bit of a bit of a conversation somebody tells a story and I would imagine that she picked up a lot of the stories that way but she had a nurse in particular who who um who told her a lot of stories and so she would go over to the Grimm's and she would tell them the stories and she developed a, a close bond with Wilhelm Grimm and we know that because the there's evidence that she that she told stories to him just to, to Wilhelm so she would tell the stories in in the Grimm's parlor where they would have lots of people gathered there sort of, you know, narrating stories and it sounds like the most wonderful sort of writing workshop that was going on really and then occasionally she would meet Wilhelm and he would write down the stories because him and Jacob didn't necessarily write down the stories when they were originally told but then I think he would ask her you know can you can you tell me that you know that story you mentioned about the singing bone maybe we can sit down together and 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 go over that one again and so in in the um the hand exemplar the the sort of proof copy of the um children's and household tales there's marginal annotations saying you know this story was told by um by uh, by Dorchen sort of in the in um, in various places in the garden house the summer house in her sister's there's one occasion where she told three stories in her sister's house in um oh, what's the place called? i think it's nentershausen which is a few miles outside of castle so wilhelm who wasn't a great traveler had gone quite a distance to to meet dorchen and so you have these two very young people i mean they're they're, they're really young i think she's sort of you know you know, she's a teenager at this stage and Dorchen's not much older uh, sorry and Wil Wilhelm's not much older and she's telling him the stories of the singing bone sweetheart Roland and the six swans um, and I was very struck reading about this because this is clearly there's there's flirtation going on here I mean these are very macabre and grisly stories but also the six swans the the uh, the, the, the story really opens with a striptease uh, a very strange moment in the story where the, the heroine um sort of strips off uh, to to try and deter the um the guards and the and the king which obviously doesn't work so and and but yeah they, I, I you would imagine that those you, you could imagine the sort of the heated atmosphere in that summer house as she's telling those stories to Wilhelm and then Wilhelm himself you know I mean something that I sort of comment on in a lot of the talks is that he's you know you 
we have to sort of you know, exercise that historical imagination. This is a this is a sort of very thin, lanky, pasty-faced, very sickly young man, which in 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 the context of you know the romantic period means he's basically you know really sexy guy <laughs> and Dorchens you know clearly sort of fell in love with him and you know, thought he was really really rather lovely and um, and I think he was I mean you know when you read about him in in the letters and the diaries and everything he does come across as being a very sweet sort of character and I think Dorchens comes across as being a really a really really kindly lovely human being and um, so it's a very happy thing that happened, you know, that ultimately they came together. There were a lot of obstacles and the, the, her father was a very grumpy man. He didn't like the Grimms. I mean, to be, you know, it's, it's the classic situation, isn't it? You know, he's the, he's the, the tradesman who's seeing these, these intellectuals across the road. You know, what's the chance of actually, of them actually making it or making a living? And they weren't doing very well. I mean, they were, you know, in those early years, they were not making very much money. And so he clearly wanted his daughters to marry people with better prospects. But they, Dorchen and Wilhelm sort of kept that flame for each other. And there were there were a few bumps in the road, but they did eventually get married and had children together and moved moved away from Kassel, moved to Hanover and then to Berlin and uh, lived, lived there happy ever after. So it's sort of what is one of the, I think it's really the only happy ever after actually in, in, in this book, in, in my book amongst the seven fairy tellers. I think they're the only ones that really had that. The rest mm. all sort of ended their lives rather miserably. <laughs> how, how much of, um, of Dorchen do you think we can see in these tales? Well, I think I, I've, I felt that the more I looked at them, the more, you know, if you put those stories I, I did a lot of sort of putting these stories and sort of writing down exactly what are the main sort of components in these stories, what happens in these stories, what are the themes in these stories, and and trying to compare her with some of the other storytellers. So the one I compared her with a lot was Mary Hassenfluck, partly because I think they're very similar in many ways. They were both young women who told a lot of very similar stories. A lot of their stories take place in the forest. They're a lot about the the heroine is 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 foregrounded very much in in i think most of their stories but you find these these differences which i think reflect their lives one of them is that in dorchen's stories there's a lot of housework a lot of the characters act are, are are it's mentioned that they do housework that they have to do chores they have to do jobs whether it's in a frau holler where the, you know it's about her doing the jobs properly that's how she's able to get the rewards or gretel in hansen and gretel having to do the chores for the witch or um, the um, there's the mention of there's the, the housework is a, is a is an important component of stories like the elves and the shoemaker and of course doing physical work do the idea of physical work is important in Rumpelstiltskin and so on. Um, whereas if you look at Mary Hassenflug's stories and it's I think it's just a sort of subtle difference, but I think you know she was the daughter of of a government official who they would have had servants in the house. It was more of a middle class, upper middle class lifestyle. And so in her stories, you don't tend to get that. It doesn't seem to be part of the plot so much. It doesn't quite come in in the same way. So even a story like Snow White and the Seven Doors, which is remembered now through Disney as being a story where Snow White is you know, doing all this labor for the doors. But actually, if you read that first edition, that, that, um, that first version, the, the sort of 1810 version, I think it is version of the story, that's not really, it's not really a significant part of the storyline. And I think that, uh, I think that Mary Hassenflug was, you know, she had, there, there are differences, there are differences in the, in, in, in the tone, in the themes. She's got a really grisly, macabre uh, way of seeing things actually. I think Mary Hasenflug's stories are remarkable. They're wonderfully sadistic at times. 
Um, but I think also because she had a had a, had ill health, I think she was also quite drawn to the idea of heroines who who are incapacitated in some way, which is something that happens to Snow White. Um, really, I mean, my focus was very much on Dorchin, and so it was just sort of seeing how certain things about her heroines. And I think a lot of heroines are quite active, but I think she's also got this very dark sort of psychology in the stories which is strange because you look at what was written about her and told mentioned about her during her life and she seemed to be this incredibly nice kindly person but there was clearly a lot of darkness there because the stories that she chose to tell were were pretty dark um so i think that's a factor and i somebody else i talked to was jack zipes who i'm sure you've come across a lot with um your um with the podcast um and we and he also talked about this idea that you can hear the voices of these of these uh, of these storytellers if you if you if you listen to those if you, you read those those first manuscripts that you know that it's not so far you know you're only you're only a few days away in some cases from them hearing those tellers telling those tales so they haven't had time to shape the stories and we know from the later editions that they did shape the stories Wilhelm especially changed the stories watered down a lot of the violence changed the mothers into stepmothers to make it a bit more acceptable you know when for example when Snow White's mother originally wants to effectively cannibalize her organs for her own beauty you know that gets sort of changed into something softer Hansen and Gretel's mother gets changed into the stepmother as well you know those kind of things changed with each edition so those first that first edition where uh, where some of those and and the first sort of manuscript of of of, of some of those tales where you know it's only it's very very close to when Dorchin was actually telling those stories so I think as close as we can we can we can sort of hear her there we can hear her telling the tales that I find that really exciting well, so it really does sound like we can see the tellers in the tales. Mm. They're not all; uh, they haven't just disappeared into them. Um, I think one thing that you said about Dorchin, I think you said that she had a surreal eye. I think if I'm getting the quote right, yeah. So there's yeah. like little details in her stories that stand out. Yeah, she's got. I think she's got a. She had a very good eye for visual imagery. So you have these these wonderful images. So there's the the one which would become perhaps the classic image of of one of the classic images of Grimm's tales. The which in her original version is the house of bread and cakes in the forest and the idea of a, of a house made out of made out of edible materials which then eventually becomes known as the gingerbread house and you have the girl who has to walk in the paper dress in winter time to go and collect strawberries um in um in in one of the other stories i think it's three little story. men in the woods, in the woods. Yeah. yeah um so you have these um these one wonderful yeah wonderfully surreal very visual images that come out i think in in numerous stories um there's the story of the porridge the 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 bowl of porridge that the, the pot of porridge that, that expands and, and spreads out and and takes over the whole town when i heard somebody on the radio just the other day saying about how they used to have nightmares from hearing that story and i was geeky me i was just thinking that's one of dorchens <laughs> <laughs> So, and then um, there was also the um the 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 feathers from the bed in Fitch's bird as well I think you wrote about. Yes, Fitch's bird. I mean that's such a I actually think it's a much more uh, compelling version to me than than Bluebird. And I think because the the visual imagery in it is so weird. Mm. It's so sort of wonderful and 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 you can visualize it. And there's that that ability to come up with images that just stick in your mind and that you get immediately and you can just see the story. So I imagine because it does seem to recur quite commonly in her stories, if you compare them with with some of the other tellers, I, I think there is something there in 
in in Georgia. I mean, another thing is the is the rhymes. There are lots of rhymes that occur that recur in her stories, and you also get rhymes in her uh, her memoirs when she, which she narrated to her daughter. Uh, so there are yeah, there are these different things that seem to have been common to her her way of seeing the world. I mean, I was just mesmerized by the the level of detail and the knowledge that you were displaying in the book. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, I I just I'd love to talk about all the other um, fairy tellers. Maybe we can squeeze in one or two. Um, so a firm favorite you mentioned him earlier uh, with the podcast for us is Basile, and I think yeah, you described his work as storytelling at its most sumptuous and strange, which I think is a great way of putting it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about maybe your trip in, in Naples and what you discovered or, or something surprising about Basile? Because for me, so I went to Naples a few years ago and um, I was really excited to find a copy of it in, you know, Neapolitan to take home, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And I got this, I got a slight feeling maybe that they didn't, it wasn't alive as part of the the fabric of Naples anymore. But it sounds to me like maybe you, you did find this sort of storytelling world alive there. Yeah, actually, there was a copy of of the Kunta de la Kunti in um, one of the bookshops on the Piazza. Is it Piazza Dante? I think there's a statue of Dante, and there's a, this big piazza with various bookshops and some sort of secondhand bookshops. And the thing that really excited me was that they had a glass case where they had um, uh, Eleanor Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet and Basile's uh, Tale of Tales underneath it. And I just thought that was wonderful because <laughs> there's a lot that those those I think are the as far as I'm aware the two great masterpieces of Neapolitan literature and they have a lot in common um for Anthony also starts her, her story with fairy tales and goes back into the idea of what fairy tales how fairy tales messes up so uh you know it's uh, it's it's there in her in her amazing novels and um uh yeah Basile it was just lovely to see his books on sale but I did actually go into one of the bookshops and did ask them you know are, are you selling it and uh, they they sort of yeah brought out this sort of rather dusty copy I mean it's not I think yeah it's not um it's not a big seller and it was a bit disappointing uh, when I went to a bookshop in a place called Avellino where there was a, a 17th century or there's a sort of academy that was founded in the 17th century and I got in touch with them and they invited me to join them for their their regular dinner and um, and it was lovely meeting them all but there was a bookshop across the road from where they were meeting and I thought well surely they must have Basile's work in this in this children's bookshop they had all kinds of fairy tales and and stories but unfortunately they didn't have any of Basile although they did have individual versions of Cinderella and Rapunzel but based on the versions from uh, from the Grimm's and from Charles Perrault so that I thought was a bit disappointing mm. but <clears throat> what I, where I did find Basile was it's one of those things where I had to dig around a bit, but there was a there was a couple of actors who I met who had been roaming all over the place performing one of his stories. And it's a really strange story. It's the story called The Woman Who Was Skinned. And it's about two women who live in a in a hovel under a palace and they are fed up with the noise that the king of the palace is making because he's always making so much noise, uh, having all his parties. And so they keep sort of 
yelling at him and shouting out, will you, you know, will, will you, will you keep your noise down? So he decides that whoever lives in this hovel must be the, the epitome of delicacy and, 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 and tenderness and must be desperate, you know, desperately sensitive to everything. So it must be some kind of beautiful princess. And um, he begs them to show at least a finger through the, through the hole of, of, of the door, through the, through the keyhole. And so one of them pokes her finger through after sucking it a lot and um, he decides that she must be an absolute beauty and, and invites her to come back to his to his bedroom and um, so the old lady comes in, sort of in disguise um, at, at night and um, says that he can't look at her you know but she'll come to his bed and eventually you know they one thing you know what happens happens but then he lights up a, 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 up a, up a candle and he sees that she's you know, an old lady and so he's furious and, and, and appalled and he throws her out the window and then some fairies come along and decide to, for a joke just for you know fits and giggles they're going to turn her into a young girl and so they turn her into the most beautiful young girl and the king sees her through the window having thrown her out the last night and decides that he must marry her after all and says I'm terribly sorry about what happened before and, and, and marries uh, and um, and then her, her sister comes along to the wedding and says what's happened to you how on earth did you you know turn into this you know, this this beauty and she says oh I had myself skinned because she doesn't want to give away her the truth and so the sister goes to a barber and begs the barber to skin her and he refuses at first but she pays him several several gold coins and so he brings out his barber knives and says you're going to regret this you know she goes no no do it do it do it and so he skins her and <clears throat> And that's the end of her and she dies in agony so yeah uh anyway they put on a play of, of this uh, this delightful fairy tale and um it was very good uh, but i i, I talked to the two actors who played it was two men who played the parts and they were, they were playing around a lot with ideas of gender roles and and ideas about beauty and and the way that we perceive um beauty so so they really brought out the themes of the play brilliantly and it was an amazingly skillfully done play and they were two actors from naples and i talked to them about what Basile means and they were really eloquent about his importance to them as 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 a figure in in neapolitan literature and as somebody whose stories they'd grown up with so i think he is there i don't think he's there in the in the way that the Grimm's are or that Hans Christian Andersen is, but I think he's there to some extent. And, you know, I think every so often people come along who are, who are sort of activated in some way by his storytelling. There's one concept in, in your book that I found quite interesting. Um, you were talking about the, the idea of the, the balance between local texture and universal appeal. Mm. So, the, so the idea that you get a lot of local details in these stories versus the idea that you know these have to what well, they do appeal across borders um and I, I think you said that in some cases the local detail is a detriment in Basile's story they can be a bit confusing um whereas say in the Arabian Nights they actually kind of mm. make the stories like the magic lamp or the flying carpet um yeah I mean what what do you think about that I thought that was a fascinating concept and you know do you think the Grimm's got that idea right that balance right yeah, well, I think the Grimm's really worked on it. They kept working on edition after edition until they struck just the right balance and also brought in the illustrations, which really helped them with their sales. And they reduced their number of tales. I mean, there are you know obviously hundreds of tales in the first two volumes of the first edition. But with the um, 
this the smaller edition that they brought out in 1825 they reduced it to 50 tales so that obviously mm. helped as well i think that <clears throat> what you get with Basile is is yeah there's a lot of local texture there's a lot of references to the architecture and to the clothing and to the customs of naples which wouldn't have translated outside of a uh, outside of naples or outside of italy and so i think when those stories were then sort of taken on and retold by french storytellers like charles perrault or the baroness Dornoy, they obviously translated it into their own milieu and produced those stories in much um, less costumed versions, which seemed to work better for for as as tales to tell to children. I mean, stories generally to to become popular in in the nurseries, they've always had to be pared down and stripped back and sort of taken down to those cores. But I think the Thousand and One Nights is 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 different because it is actually the very that sort of Oriental texture to it that, that gives it its appeal it gives it its what is seen as its exoticism and i think that is something that is in itself quite problematic because i think sometimes we shouldn't need that we should actually be able to recognize the universality of those stories it's something i talked with um, an egyptian storyteller called shirin al-azari about about the 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 people's failure to recognize the universality of some of those stories I think we do that a little bit with something like Sinbad and his adventures, but I think with a lot of the stories from the A Thousand One Nights, they tend to be seen as specifically Oriental tales. Whereas, you know, we don't do that obviously with, with uh, I think these obviously made was we don't do that with Homer. You know, we don't think of that as being a reflection of Greek culture so much so um so i think it's something that we need to challenge ourselves a bit on really and i think that's the issue really that that we can in some ways we totally ignore the the local textures and then in some ways i think we get bogged down in them and i think we just need to sort of balance them and recognize that they can be part of what gives charm to a story because i think a lot of stories get their charm from being rooted in something in some kind of locality because we all have a locality in our own lives and so i think that we can connect with that sense that the that these characters they live in a house on a street with windows or doors or chimneys or whatever but it has something there's some kind of physical texture to it and so whether it's that you're describing the um the houses of naples where they're often sort of halfway down stairs and in these sort of basements or whether you're describing a sort of wooden hut in a german forest or whether you're describing um a, a french uh, chateau you know you want to get a little bit of a sense that you want to be able to visualize it but at the same time, we also need to have that core of the story that we can recognize as being something that's universal to all of us. And I think there's, that's there in Basile's stories, but it's it's not always that easy to see behind such, such lavish descriptions mm. and such such a sort of weight of, of colorful visual language that he pours into it. You know, he does overdo it deliberately. He's, he's, he piles it on, he's showing off. I mean, he can do so much. He can come up with these amazingly elaborate similes and, 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 and then these ridiculously random quotes from, from, from Plato or Pliny. And then these sort of uh, incredibly ornate descriptions of the sun rising uh, when you really just want to get to the next part of the story and he uses these similes sometimes as a kind of form of suspense to sort of go haha I'm not going to tell you what happened next first I'm going to give you an amazing sunrise and then we're going to get to the next bit of the story so he uses it very cleverly at times but I can see why some people would have got really fed up with it so there was one uh, critic who who said reading Basile is like uh, it makes you feel like you want to vomit even on an empty stomach and I thought that was great because <laughs> I could see where he was coming from I and mean, I just 
disagree. I think Bazile, reading Bazile is fantastic. But, you know, he's, he's not for everybody. And if you're somebody who likes, you know, your, um, your pared down prose, then, you know, he's, he's not going to be for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've covered a few of his tales on the podcast and we always really enjoy it for that very reason. I think yeah. we like that kind of florid, really verbose kind of uh, telling. Um, hopefully this is, you don't think this is too reductive a question, but who's your favourite teller? It's so if hard. To if that answer. is answerable, so hard to answer because I spent quite a while with all of them, and maybe it was writing the book in during lockdown as well that I felt like they were, you know, I wasn't talking to many people. I felt like I was really bonding with these characters. They were they were in my life in a in a really what felt to me like quite a profound way, and you know, I felt like I got to know them quite well. I mean, Hans Christian Andersen, I I there's a lot he left behind a lot a lot of diaries a lot of a lot of memoirs and obviously a lot of stories and so I felt like I really knew him in a in quite a three-dimensional way and I felt for him you know he was a very lonely man a very troubled man in many ways and I really just wanted to sort of reach back through the centuries and give him a hug so so I feel a lot of love for him and I think sometimes he gets maligned a bit by by people who maybe don't necessarily empathize with just what a journey he went on you know he was a cobbler's son a, a washerwoman's son he came from the, what was seen as the bottom level of society and he actively chose to leave that he said at 14 I'm going I'm going to the city the big city I'm going to make it and he did and he and that was despite people laughing at him throwing him out of 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 the rich people's homes thinking he was completely ridiculous and he just kept picking himself up and kept kept trying and he was strange and he was a bit you know of a social misfit and he didn't always behave very well but he he was I think he was ultimately quite he was ultimately just amazing. You know, he was a genius. He came up with these incredible stories and um, some of them are dated worse than others, I think, but uh, but some of them are, are, are genius. Some of them are absolutely brilliant. And um, so so I, I feel a lot of love for him, but I, I guess he, he didn't feel like a discovery in the way that the others did. So I guess when I think of, in terms of the book, I think, you know, Basile for me was a real discovery. I hadn't really heard of Basile before I started looking into doing the research in the book. And then the more I found out about him, the more I loved him because he's such a garrulous, charismatic performer of words. And he was the kind of person you just think I would love to be able to go back into, back in time, back to Naples and hang out in, in his favourite Taverna and just sort of listen to him telling tall tales. I imagine he'd have been a wonderful, you know, real, a real joy just to sort of spend time with. And then I, yeah, I mean, I go through all of them really. I mean, I, I also have a real soft spot for Ivan Khudjakov, the Russian storyteller, who, who I don't think would have been much fun to hang out with. I think that he was really miserable, but uh, he, he, he went on an incredible journey. You know, he, he, he came out of uh, the villages of Siberia, Irkutsk, and, and then studying in Kazan and coming to Moscow and St. Petersburg, putting together a collection of fairy tales at the age of 18 very much concerned with the with the plight of the ordinary people with the surf class that was coming out from the from the fields and moving into the cities and trying to help them with uh, various books like his his tutorial for learning to read and write and then got involved with a group that wanted to assassinate the czar so he ended up being cast out to the the coldest town on earth and his mind went to pieces and he died in a lunatic ward uh, so it was a really tragic life in in many ways and you know but i you know i felt 
I felt tremendously for him. And that felt like a real discovery because his story hasn't been told in, in English. You know, very little has he's been very rarely mentioned. There's another Russian writer called Alexander Afanasyev who very just uh, very rightly has been given much more attention because it's his version of the Baba Yaga tales that are the, 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 the most commonly told ones. But Ivan's story, I think, was amazing. And he's also, I think, really important because he actually went around the villages listening to the ordinary people telling those stories, which is what we often think of the Grimm's doing. But as you'll know, that's uh, that's not really what they did. They didn't go to the, the villages and the, you know, the half places. So, um, so Ivan Khodjikov, I think, is actually important in the history of fairy telling because he he re he represents that 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 cliche, that sort of romantic view of the story to, of the story collector wandering around the villages collecting the tales. And so his really were tales from the mouths of the ordinary people. So, oh, I don't know. I mean, if I was to pick one, I think I might even pick him just because I think he's one I would I love I, I love to tell people about because I feel like you know that this is news to bring to to the to the genre of fairy tales of the history of fairy tales he was amazing his story de definitely stood out to me um and i think the other one was um hannah diab not sure how you pronounce yes it. i haven't even mentioned hannah diab I mean, <laughs> he's the one that i probably like the most he's so likable I mean, he left his memoir of of his adventures and he traveled from from aleppo he thought he was going to be a monk in a monastery and then Along the way, the, the Paul Lucas, the French archaeologist, was struggling to be understood by the muleteer, and so he, Hannah did a bit of translation for him. And then they go off on adventures together. And Lucas says, "Come along with me. I'll, you know, make your fortune. You'll, you'll, you'll never want or starve. You'll, you'll, everything will be great." You know, they go off to the cisterns of Alexandria, the Bardo Palace of Tunisia, shipwrecks, pirates, all the way to Versailles. And he presents a couple of desert jabots at the court of Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, and, and then goes and stays in. Lucas's apartment where he's a sort of you know Lucas had this amazing apartment with his he had something like 700 medicinal plants and 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 various sort of artifacts from the holy land and a, a camel's muzzle damaskined in silver and and then Hannah as well sort of or another oriental art, artifact along with all the others and he could tell stories and he told these wonderful stories like Aladdin and Ali Barber and the 40 thieves and told them to Antoine Galland who had been translating the a thousand and one nights and so they became these very famous stories and then he basically got stabbed in the back by by the machinations of the French French intellectual court you know it's sort of like um, like the modern publishing world and um, it's, <laughs> it's full of full of uh, full of darkness and and ambition and so uh, he um, he ended up going all the way back back home to Aleppo and not realizing that he'd he'd made this seismic contribution to world storytelling I mean he you know with Aladdin especially but also with the sort of wider body of stories that he'd contributed, he'd, he'd really given something amazing to the world. Fantastic. Yeah, that, um, yeah, it's just that, that he was just, I got the feeling of a little boy from Aleppo. Just, he wasn't rich or anything, was he? And he finds himself no, in the Palace a, of the Sun King. There's a very quality to his incredible. story, I think. Yeah, and uh, obviously it doesn't really end with quite what you would think of as a happy ever after, but... In some ways, you know, I think by the time he got back home, I think he was quite glad to be away from the West. He he was fed up with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we got uh, one final question for you, um, Nick. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's another very reductive question, but it's one we ask all our guests that we uh, interview. Uh, if if possible, could you tell us what is your favourite fairy tale? Well. 
as a child, my favourite fairy tale was the Snow Queen. And I had this sort of sentimental kind of attachment to you know, favourite things from childhood. And I think because coming back and rereading it and finding that it hadn't lost any of the power that I remembered and that I still thought it was absolutely beautiful and incredibly layered story. I think it's one of the few fairy tales that really does pull away from the archetypes to become something that feels quite quite profound and psychologically to have some nuance to it um but as i mentioned about sort of that sense of discovery with uh, the other tellers um i think also with the tales and i think there's one of Basile's tales which is called the flea which i just love and i i hadn't come across that before and i just thought it was wonderful and it's about an ogre who 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 well it's about a princess actually who lives in a palace and her father has been bitten by a flea and he has the the flea skin the flea has grown to the size of a sheep and he has its skin hung up in the palace hall and then the uh, ogre is the only one who can identify what it is and then the princess has to marry the ogre but then she's uh, she's aided to escape from his cave by seven brothers with magical skills and, and they help her get out until one of them makes a turns a stick into a huge tower and and one of them has got a bow and he shoots the ogre in the eye as the ogre is chasing them and then they they bring the dead ogre back to the palace and and she is uh, reinstated back in the palace uh, but it's a it's a wonderfully adventurous and colorful and, and strange story and um, and also it's the ogre who the, the 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 key to the crux of the story really is that none nobody none of the lords and princes and dukes can identify this huge giant flea skin the only one who can is the ogre because the ogre really knows what's what but um ultimately obviously it doesn't doesn't do the ogre any good you know he ends up um his throat slits like a lump of ricotta <laughs> <laughs> wonderfully basile yeah, yeah classic basile yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for your time nick we really appreciate it. that was absolutely fascinating oh you're welcome thanks very much for inviting me on well there we have it uh, there we have it fantastic chat there with uh, with nick jubber uh matt i think you might mentioned in the in the interview unfortunately a bit under the weather today um, yes <laughs> so a few a few sort of ducking away from the microphone to cough but um i think you got away with it just about yeah just about i'm just about holding it together to be honest yeah true <laughs> i've got a lot of uh, thank you thank you sir a table full a of a lot of medicine lemsip yeah yeah <laughs> yes absolutely and lock it yeah um but no i i held it together and that was a that was a great interview i thought really interesting um it's always good to interview someone that's really passionate about the stuff and uh he clearly is and um yeah interesting journey obviously so so if yeah. You, if you haven't gathered, Matt has read the book, uh, uh, his new book, The Fairy Teller. I have not read it, but um, from what just from this conversation, it's kind of fascinating, really. Mm. Uh, and you can just tell he's just a font of knowledge as well. Yeah. It's just sort of mind blowing. It's just he's uh, just got all that information at his fingertips, and it's a lot. You know, it's a very dense book. There's a lot in there. But as you say, yeah, he's clearly very passionate, and he knows his stuff as well. Yeah. And I love how, yeah, he um, he didn't just write a book about the fairy tale tellers. He actually went there to see the sights, you know, smell the smells, get that feel of the actual place where these people came from. Yeah, um, and that comes which across. Is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, so so some spoilers on uh, 
some busy lay tales but yeah i don't know if we were ever going to read them at some point but they were fantastic he loves bazile so good it's nice to hear someone else talk about yeah, it yeah yeah it's not just us being weird <laughs> being weird fanboys yeah other people like him yeah. too and he really liked him i think he said it was one of his best discoveries yeah definitely um so it, what was it the woman who was skinned or something that these actors were putting on in in naples yeah. that's interesting yeah so i i thought that um that was a great tale really interesting and also so i mean he talked um i think he talked a bit about bazilia when we asked what his favorite uh who his favorite fairy teller was um but he started off by talking about hans christian anderson and that was actually i actually found that quite um emotional when he was talking about his his history and his his journey through life because i i think in the few hans christian anderson tales we've read that's actually the key thing that sticks in my mind is how actually genuinely emotional mm. they can be more than I think mm-hmm. any of the other stories we read. Like it really like gets you, <laughs> gets you in the field. He, he just wants to go back and give him a hug. Yeah. I think we felt like that at times, haven't we? We have. Yeah. And we, um, uh, we released over the, this summer, uh, the little mermaid to our patrons. Yeah. Uh, it's also available uh, to, purchase as a one-off uh, download from payhip.com slash grim reading so smooth <laughs> thanks man <laughs> working on this um you set them up i'll knock them down yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah we had a sort of mini brief biography of hans christian Anderson and that and it was absolutely tragic yeah um and we're definitely gonna do a hans christian Anderson biography episode one day completely i would love that yeah well we d- yeah we did a we did a Brothers Grimm one yeah. a, few, a few years ago now, probably. And I think, yeah. I mean, I mean to be honest, we've we got loads of uh, potential biographies, really, in here. I mean, it was also fascinating. I would just say about um, the two stories he told us about Basile, yeah. the skin one and the flea one. Yeah. Um, they are both, I believe, t- retold in the like 2015 uh, movie called the tale of tales which stars toby jones and salma hayek oh. um it it's a it's a great little film i saw it before we even started grim reading and before i even knew who Basile was uh, i think you can find it on streaming services really really good um, and both those Basile stories are in that so that i was i already that's have interesting. i've got those images seared in my mind already oh wow yeah but that's a good film that is a good film to watch I don't it's weird we haven't talked about it before. i was gonna say i don't think you've <laughs> ever mentioned that before yeah interesting <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, there, I mean, there's so many to talk about that. Yeah. Um, the Russian guy, his story is unbelievable. Yeah. He was involved in uh, an assassination plot of the Tsar in the like sort of febrile late 19th century Russia, yeah. and he ends up in a mental asylum. <laughs> and the story of uh, of Hannah Diab, who gave us Aladdin, was just out of this world, unbelievable. Mm. Um, yeah. And of course, Dorchen. We spent a lot of time on Dorchen, which is right, rightly so, I think. Rightly so. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Um, one thing I really liked about that, as he totally agreed with us, and we said it at the time in Fitch's Bird, that's a way better version of Bluebeard yeah. than Bluebeard. Yeah. Out of the like murderous husband stories, Fitch's Bird's the best, and he yeah. literally said that. Yeah. So we feel we feel validated. Yeah. We feel seen. Oh, I feel so validated after that interview. <laughs> <laughs> so much stuff. It's not just us, Adam. <laughs> he also talked about Sinbad, the same. I know. Unprompted. I know. And, uh, Unbelievable. We didn't. We didn't. I don't think we mentioned the fact that we just literally just 
read the whole series, but yeah, what yeah, the well chances? I, I'm, I'm doing another smooth bit of like, you know, <laughs> plugging. Marketing. Where can people find that, Matt? <laughs> well, uh, you'll be able to find that. Uh, I'm not really sure, actually. So we did, a, we did a series of Sinbad the Sailor for our higher tier patrons. We did eight episodes of the voyages of Sinbad the Sailor, and that um, might also be available to buy from payhip.com. Yeah, it's been not suggested sure a few yet. times. We'll, we'll look into it, so mm. that's a possibility, yeah. But it was interesting. He talked about, you know, the local flavor and, and how... We don't associate that with Sinbad necessarily. They f- that feels like a universal story, like the Odyssey or whatever. Whereas things like Aladdin or, you know, Alibaba, that feels very rooted in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and he's saying, yeah, maybe it's good to break out of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all very, very fascinating. Yeah, really interesting. And I mean, c- coming back round full circle to Bazile, he when you were talking about that, uh, he said that part of the reason that a lot of people don't like Bazilo is his, his very sort of verbose um, meandering yeah. uh, sort of narrative style and he, he that he's that I think that's why he loves it and that's why we love him it's it's a, it's a plus not a not a not a negative definitely oh. so that's the fourth interview we've done I don't know if I could say we're getting good at it yet maybe not <laughs> <laughs> Um, I always find it a bit stressful. I, I think I think we're getting good at it, Adam. Sorry, I'm you just sort of trying to understand you through the fog of the the fog of the medicine in my brain. You're fighting the lemsit brain, yeah. Fighting the lemsit brain, but, but I mean, yeah. Unless I was completely incoherent because I'm medicated up, it was good. I thought I think we are getting good. Yeah, it's tricky for you, I guess, because you haven't read the book and I've read that book. That's so that's, that's the downside, and so I almost feel a bit rude talking to people when I've not sort of read their books. And uh, so, why would you write a book about that? <laughs> why would you do that? So apparently, this book's all about this. Um, yeah. But no, but I mean, to a person, everyone's been very gracious, uh, and yeah, that was a really enjoyable chat. I would actually point out, if it's not been clear already, uh, that. For this episode, because Matt is feeling a little bit under the weather, we're sort of beaming in uh, from our separate castles, so we're not actually together this time. I don't know if that made a difference at all. but hmm. Well, I mean, it would be easier to edit. <laughs> True. <laughs> that is a very good point. It's heartbreaking, though. Yeah. Well, my, co- my castle's very toasty. Mine's very cold, actually. Is it? It's very cold. Oh, I, unlucky. I did light a fire this afternoon, but it's gone out, so I'm going to have to re- relight it uh, after we finish recording. You know, I'll let you do that. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you alone. Um, but I'll be round your castle very soon again, Adam. Okay. For another episode of Grim Reading. No. Really? Yeah, I don't know what it'll be, because we've no idea where this will be in the <laughs> schedule <laughs> for, of release. <laughs> we haven't figured that out yet. Expert planning. Hello, Matt from the future here, beaming in to help Matt from the past. Uh, I'm feeling much better since the recording, thank you. Uh, And I'm also uh, happy to confirm that our next episode will be our Christmas special, which will be out in about a week's time from the release of this episode. And with that in mind, I couldn't recommend uh, Nick's book, uh, The Fairy Tellers Higher, as a fantastic Christmas present. It makes an excellent stocking filler. So if you're looking for presents, The Fairy Teller, it's a brilliant book. I'll hand back to Matt and Adam from the past, trying to uh, professionally end the episode. Adam can be with uh, me tonight for this clarification. He's busy prepping his castle for the big party. 
I'll see you then. I'll, I'll see you. I'll see you when I see you. Uh, no truer word. And um, <laughs> has ever been spoken. And <laughs> until that point in time, please, for goodness sake, keep it grim. Keep it grim. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash grimreading to find out how, and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us. You can, of course, email us at grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at grimreadingpod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook at grimreading. You can find us on podbean, podbean.com slash grimreading, and we also have a website, grimreading.wordpress.com. Keep it grand.